So, uh, welcome to another edition of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Uh, today we are talking about the gambler's fallacy. Um, it's also known as the Monte Carlo fallacy, and it got that name because of an incident that happened at a Monte Carlo casino back in 1913. Um, so this uh, one roulette wheel landed on black 26 times in a row. Right? Crazy, right? And... Gamblers lost millions of dollars betting against black, right? Because they're like, oh my gosh, it's landed on black so many times. It has to land on red next. I mean, there's no way. And then, you know, it would keep happening. They'd lose more money. Um, or they would think that, oh, well, it landed on black 26 times. It's got to land on red a whole bunch of times now, right? And they would still, you know, lose more money, right? Now, here's the thing. It landing on black 26 times is really super unlikely. It's something like, uh, you know, one in 67 million. Here's the thing. Any other sequence of 26 results is also one in 67 million, right? So, you know, 25 black and one red is just as unlikely. Um, but when you see that streak, right, you start to build up this image, oh, we're due, right, for something else. That phrase, we're due, is kind of the hallmark of this fallacy. And we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the clustering illusion, right? Like there was a Simpsons quote and everything. Um, and uh, and this is kind of like a uh, smaller version or a subset of that illusion. Um, and I want to talk a little more about it today because there's just a lot of interesting science behind it and sort of just bigger implications for who we are as a people. Um, so so you have this um, another name for the Monte Carlo uh, fallacy is the fallacy of the maturity of chances. And I love the way that's phrased because that's really what it's about, right? It's this idea of you think that even though something is random, right? If you see one unlikely thing happen a bunch of times, you assume, okay, um, uh, it's going to have to stop soon because that's just the nature of the universe. Or if something happens, if something doesn't happen, right, for a really long time, right, you know, the generals keep losing, right? Um, you think, oh, well, they're due. Like, this thing is due to happen now because we've been so long without it. But that's just not how, like, odds and probability work, right? So, uh, for example, when you think about uh, like hundred, when they refer to storms as like a hundred year event or like an asteroid that could kill us, you know, the odds of it are like one every 65 million years. You know, the way that's phrased is deceiving because it makes people think, oh, after we go 65 million years, I guess we're due. I guess the odds have increased now that this is going to happen. It's like, no, they're the exact same as they were the day before. It's just a way of expressing how unlikely it is. Like every hundred years, we're not going to get a hundred year storm. It's not like a schedule. It's just a way of trying to express how rare this event is, right? Um, but our minds, you know, uh, look at it differently. Um, another example is um, like parents when they want, you know, to have a particular gender of child. And this was like a study from like back in uh, like the 1800s or late 1700s um, where they would observe like these dads in these towns who really wanted boys would get really nervous if by the end of the month, a whole lot of other boys were born in that town, they think, oh, it's used up like the boy quotient, right? Like as if there's some like, you know, um, like that's how it works with um, uh, in families where like they've had three boys and they assume, well, the next one's got to be a girl. Well, not necessarily, right? It's the 50-50 odds every single time. Um, and that's the thing with, with all of these kind of scenarios is um, you have uh, like a shuffling a deck of cards or flipping a coin 50 times, like the odds of any outcome are extremely unlikely, right? In that whole sequence, right? So 50 heads in a row is extremely unlikely, but so is any other outcome, right? 
you know, an, any random HTTT, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, heads, tails, like anything you want to name, is equally unlikely. But A result, right, like after those 50, you know, uh, coin flips or after shuffling that of cards, you are going to have a sequence. Like that's 100% probability. Um, so our minds have difficulty like resolving those two things and saying, well, this really unlikely thing happened that is easily identifiable as unlikely, right? Like we shuffled the cards and they all came out, you know, perfectly matched suits in a row. Um, uh, it's really easy to identify that as unlikely. It's harder for us to sort of get our heads around something that looks random being just as unlikely or having the, the same odds of happening. Um, another, you know, this starts to get very gendered very quickly, right? So... Um, if someone has, uh, if someone ha becomes pregnant, right, and they had had unprotected sex, um, like a teen had unprotected sex and became pregnant, there'd kind of be more of an assumption that they had had unprotected sex before, right? There's all these sort of, you know, gendered kind of assumptions and, and prejudices around that versus, oh, this teen had unprotected sex and they didn't get pregnant there'd be this weird assumption, oh, it must have been the first time. Because again, we have this illusion that the number of times you have unprotected sex has some kind of impact on the odds of this time you having unprotected sex resulting in a getting pregnant or not. When in fact, every single instance is different. Every single instance, the odds are exactly the same that you are or not going to um, have a kid uh, or get pregnant. Um, I think Bitcoin is a weird example of this. It's not necessarily gambler's fallacy because the price of Bitcoin going up or down is not a random event. However, um, it kind of gets treated as such and uh, people... Basically, people sort of decide whether or not to buy more, which, of course, then drives up the price based on, to some extent, the gambler's fallacy, right? They see the price going up and up and up, and either they think falsely it's going to continue to go up because it's been going up or falsely that it's going to suddenly drop because, oh, after the streak, it has to fall. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then if they buy or don't buy based on that, they in fact then influence the outcome. So you get this weird inception loop of gambler's fallacy around, you know, the price of Bitcoin. And you can look at really any stock with this, but Bitcoin's kind of like the low-hanging fruit right now. Um, uh, there's a weird kind of reverse gambler's fallacy where you assume a, an outcome, you assume the past based on an outcome. So there's one um, argument about, you know, why is it that we, you know, live in a world that's perfectly suited to support life, that's so weird and rare, and the circumstances around it are highly unlikely? It must be that there are millions of universes, and out of those, we just happen to have the one that has, that is able to sustain life. Um, when in fact, there's nothing about, you know, that doesn't change the odds of coming up with uh, a universe that can sustain life, right? Whether or not there are, in fact, millions of universes or just one. Um, but it just, our minds are, feel more comfortable with, with the first scenario. Um, and uh, another complicating factor here is uh, survivor bias. So we talked about survivor bias a while ago, um, and it's this idea of, a survivor, like, you know, tells their story about how, hey, you know, I made millions of dollars on the stock market and so can you. And you just kind of ignore, like, the far greater number of people who didn't do that, right? So you just assume, you know, the same thing here, right? So I had this losing streak and all of a sudden I turned it around. All of a sudden, you know, a gambler might think, well, if they did it, so can I. And ignore the evidence of the hundreds of thousands of other gamblers who did not turn around their losing streak. In fact, the gambler's fallacy is sometimes called the gambler's ruin because after a long enough time, you know, the odds are always in favor of the house. If you keep playing, you will eventually lose. That's just how the math works. Um, and I think part of the reason um, the gambler's fallacy is so uh, pernicious is because 
a gambler's fallacy is basically a way of correcting for uncertainty, like probability. And a lot of the, the, the biases we're going to talk about this season have to do with probability and how bad we are at understanding it. Part of the reason we're bad at understanding it is because probability is always about uncertainty, right? And understanding you know, the odds. And our minds don't like uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. It's uncomfortable. Um, and un un uncertainty basically, um, you know, uncertainty basically has a lot to do with uh, uh, effort. Like, it's a lot of effort for our minds to wrap to, to wrap around this notion of, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I have to think about it more if I don't know what the outcome is going to be. If the outcome is decided, fine. I don't have to think about it anymore. Thank you. I only have so much, you know, effort I can give out in a day. Effort is expensive. There are all these studies, actually. Uh, look up Roy Baumeister sometime around sort of um, willpower, right, as an actual physical thing that you can run out of over a day. Um, or decision fatigue is another example. So there's only so much effort we can, mental effort we can put in in any given day. So any excuse, any opportunity to not put in that effort, whether it's gambler's fallacy or we've talked about zero risk bias before, right? I just don't have to think about it anymore. I can just decide this is what's going to happen. It helps, right? It gives us confidence. They've done studies where people kind of have the opportunity to use the gambler's fallacy or not, or encouraged not to. And the ones who do use it in a, like a betting scenario, bet with more confidence and they bet higher. Um, so part of that is the confidence that comes from saying, I bet I know it's going to happen. I feel confident in this outcome, even though it's totally unrealistic. You know, we're due, right? That phrase, we're due, is a way of saying, I have confidence in this outcome, rather than saying, well, the odds of this are 1 in 62 million, just like every other time. Like, you don't get a lot of confidence out of that. Um, what's really interesting, right? Here's the, the, the science. Um, is they found a potential neuropsychological, neuro neurological aspect to gambler's fallacy. Um, that's my dog, Marley, by the way. She's, I don't know what she's working at. But um, uh, they've, they've found like this neurological aspect to it um, where they put people in an fMRI machine. They can kind of see where the, the, the blood is flowing to in the brain when people do or think about certain things. And when people suffer, um, when people suffer a loss, right, a gambling loss, and this is... Just, just, just blows my mind. Um, you would think that they would sort of become more risk averse, but the um, the activity right that happens after loss is in the frontoparietal network of the brain. That gets activated, and that results in more risk taking behavior, right? And at the same time, like activity in like the amygdala, caudate and ventral striatum, um, and I don't know much about the amygdala, but I do know it has to do with fear, right? That gets suppressed. That's decreased activity. So you're less afraid of taking risks and more likely to take risks after a loss. What kind of sense does that make? But that's what happens. And the kind of reverse happens too. There was a study and they basically said, you know, in the abstract, participants were more risk seeking after losing a gamble than after winning a gamble, right? Now, the after winning a gamble part actually makes a little weird sense to me, right? So if I win money, um, the study basically says people basically became less likely to take a risk. That makes sense to me based on loss aversion. We talked about loss aversion, loss aversion last season and losing hurts twice as much as winning, right? So I can totally see someone winning some money and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm really afraid of losing this money I just won. So maybe the opposite is true and it's like, oh, I've lost. I've got to make my earnings back. Like, you know, I got, I got to make my make up for the loss. Um, so I'm going to take, make, make, take more risks. Either way, though, there's actually this neurological thing that's happening when we lose, um, when we take a risk and lose, that makes us say, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna double down, right? Our brains apparently like to double down. That's just mind-blowing to me. Um, uh, so 
I want to talk a little more about this notion of like how we like don't like uncertainty. And one of the things that the gambler's fallacy points to is this notion of you know don't like uncertainty. The fallacy gives us confidence. You know, effort is expensive, but at the same time, there's this. Uh, this all kind of boils up to an illusion of balance, right? Where it's like, oh, there's been 26, uh, you know, uh, black. The next one has to be red. Because, you know, there's balance in the universe. It just, this has to be the universe. And it's weird in gambling. Like, we think that gambling is fair in a weird way. We kind of walk into a casino and think that there's going to be this, you know, balance of wins and losses in the end, right? Um, And this illusion of balance is why we don't actually like to talk about real luck, right? Actual luck. And this is an especially, I think, American trait um, where we don't like to think about luck as a factor in outcomes, Right, we like to think that the, the illusion of the self-made man, the Horatio Alger—it's like if you put in enough effort, you know, the universe will reward you. Right, that's the universe is a meritocracy. The country is a meritocracy. We built it to be a meritocracy to remove luck from the equation. Who your parents were doesn't matter. That's what happened back in the old world. We left the old world. We're in the new world. Now you choose your own destiny. Right, um, and here's so here's the interesting thing that made me start to think about this. One of the um, articles talking about gambler's fallacy talks about the Mar- Martingale martingale betting system, right? Which is a way of kind of taking advantage, kind of hijacking the gambler's fallacy to produce a good outcome. And it's sort of a way of betting around something like a bunch of uh, coin tosses, right? The outcome of coin tosses, you make money every time there's heads, you lose money every time there's tails. And there's a way of betting around that that can make you like a million bucks, right? They ran it through a bunch of computer simulations. Here's the thing about that system. You can really only win, uh, win from it, right? If you have a lot to lose, Right, you have to be able to survive a long run of tails because a long run of tails could happen. You could have bad luck, right? It's almost a mathematical way of demonstrating and illustrating luck and the way luck works. So if you walk into that casino, right? If you walk into that betting system with you know a million dollars, right? You can stand to lose. You can you can you can go for a long run of tails without being depleted. If you walk in there with ten bucks. You, you, can, you can stand to lose a much shorter run of tails, right? And if you think about that, right, in today's society, that's kind of what we keep seeing. It's one of the myths of poverty is that, you know, the poor just aren't working hard enough when, in fact, the whole system is set up such that if you have a run of bad luck, even a very short run of bad luck, like, oh, you got sick, or, oh, your kid got sick and you couldn't go to work that day, or you got a parking ticket, but now the way that ticket, you know, or speeding ticket, and now it's so high that your license is suspended and you need more money to uh, get your, uh, to pay for that fee, and you can quickly see, like, you are much more vulnerable to a run of tails, right? Um, so it's... Scary to think that you know we're living in a casino, not you know a school or some other system we think of as um, you know merit based. So we think we're living in a school, but we're actually living in a casino, right? We're living in a place where a run of bad luck can kill you if you don't have a lot of money. But that model maps much more to the current reality of mobility and like you know how people live in America than I think anything else but that whole Martingale betting system thing really kind of I don't know put that into sharp relief for me um there are a couple of different uh solutions more or less to the gambler's fallacy 
Um, so one thing they have noticed is as we get older, we kind of get better at calling this out for what it is. So people in like different like grade levels, whatever, like fifth grade through like 11th grade or whatever, something like that. Um, the people, and then in college, like the people who, then they were basically asked like if there were four coin tosses with the fifth one that were all heads with the fifth one be a tail, something like that. And the older they got, the better they got at realizing, no, it would be just as likely to be heads as tails. Um, so age does kind of help here, um, which is rare, mind you. <laughs> um, being told about the fallacy does not stop the fallacy. And you've, we've seen this before with a lot of other cognitive biases. If you tell people in an experiment about the fallacy, hey, there's this thing, watch out for it, they'll still fall for it. However, if you just tell them to think about um, each instance of a thing as an individual piece, right? Or you set up the experiment so it's easier to think about that those coin tosses as individual instances, people get better at spotting the fallacy and making their predictions like more accurately or more realistically. Uh, I will close this out by saying happy holidays. Um, I may try to do one for New Year's, um, but if not, I will see you in the new year um, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. This is David Dylan Thomas, and I will see you next time.